again. We'll pick up our reading again. We'll just read that last verse again of chapter 9, um, as it all flows straight into chapter 10. So we'll pick it up at chapter 9, verse 38. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. On the seals are the names of Nehemiah the governor, the son of Hakaliah, Zedekiah, Sariah, Azariah, Jeremiah, Peshor, Amariah, Malkijah, Hetosh, Shebaniah, Malach, Haram, Mirmoth, Obadiah, Daniel, Genathon, Barak, Meshillam, Abijah, Mizamin, Maziah, Bilgai, Shemaiah. These are the priests. And the Levites, Jeshua, the son of Azaniah, Benui, the sons of Henadad, Kadmiel, and their brothers, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Kalita, Peleah, Henan, Micah, Rehob, Hashabiah, Zachor, Sherebiah, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Bani, Beninu. The chiefs of the people, Perosh, Peath Moab, Elam, Zatu, Bani, Bunai, Asgad, Bibai, Adonijah, Bigvai, Eden, Eter, Hezekiah, Azar, Hodiah, Heshem, Bezai, Herath, Anathoth, Nebai, Magpiash, Meshalem, Hezer, Meshezebel, Zedok, Jadua, Helatiah, Henan, Anea, Hushea, Hananiah, Heshop, Helohesh, Pilha, Shubak, Reham, Heshabana, Masaya, Ahaya, Hanan, Enan, Malak, Haram, and Bena. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and to do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forgo the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every death. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. For the showbread, the regular grain offering the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. 
We, the priests, the Levites, and the people, have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God. According to our fathers' houses, at times appointed, year by year, to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree, year by year, to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks. And to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. Let's pause and take time to pray and ask for God's help. Our Father and God, we thank you for the privilege of being around your word again. God, as we come to your words, we pray that you will help us to see who you are, how great and mighty and awesome and faithful and righteous and merciful you really are. And Lord, as we come to your word, we ask too that we will see ourselves in true light. And God, that we would be changed this morning by your word. Please speak to us, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. Well, as we've said before through this study, Nehemiah has been referred to as the man of prayer. And the theme of prayer appears again and again throughout Nehemiah. You might remember as Nehemiah initially heard the news about the state of God's people, he prayed. He remained in a time of focused prayer for three months. He, as he was then speaking to the king to request to leave, he prayed um, inwardly on the spot as he was speaking to the king. The response to constant opposition was constant prayer. There's an undeniable focus on prayer to God. And as we come to chapter 9, this is no different. In this chapter, we have the longest recorded prayer in Scripture. Now, as Christian people this morning, we know that we should pray. We know that we need to pray. But sometimes prayer can be a bit like exercise or that diet that always begins next Monday. We know we should do it, we know we need to do it, but I guess often it just doesn't happen. Often we don't pray much alone, 
or together as God's people. And so to take on this theme of prayer this morning from Nehemiah 9, I want us to think about motivation to prayer, then how we should pray, and then the results of such praying. So as we think about motivating each other to pray, both individually and corporately together, you know, it's not difficult to guilt trip people um, or, or to badger people into praying more. But as God's people, we want so much more than that. We, we, we want something of these prayers in Nehemiah 9. Because in Nehemiah 9, we see something here that is so sincere and so genuine. There is something from within that is causing God's people to rise up and to pray. And that is what we want. From verse 1, you'll see it's now the 24th day of the seventh month. And the feasting that we thought about last week finished on the 22nd day. So there's been a day in between. And now verse 1, it's the 24th day. And the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and sued and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their father. So we've had this month of feasting and of rejoicing. And now we find God's people and Really, they're in a state of mourning. And that's suggested to us by by the sackcloth and the earth on their heads. They have separated themselves from anyone who may tempt them to stray from worship and from obedience to God. But this current state is, is interesting because just last week, we saw their leaders telling them not to mourn and not to weep, but to rejoice. And yet here we find them mourning after rejoicing. Now, it was certainly right that they rejoiced as they understood all that God had done for them through his word. But as Derek Kidner says, they must be left with something more durable than a sweet taste in the mouth. Hearing and understanding the word of God, yes, should lead to rejoicing, but should also lead to lasting change in their lives. And so as they have heard the word of God, that word has exposed their hearts, and it's now time to face the reality of their sinful past and it begins to change as they move towards the future. And so the people stood up and they confessed their sins. As they stood, we see the book of the law was read for three hours, and for another three hours they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. You'll notice there were two groups of, of Levites. One was leading the people in praise, and another then was, was voicing to God the distress of the people. So the word of God had exposed the sin of God's people and caused them to stand up and confess 
their sins. Now we're wanting to think about motivation to prayer. And what we see here, the beginning of Nehemiah 9, is that what motivated God's people to pray was their own sense of sinfulness. They became acutely aware of their sins in the past and in the present, and they urgently confessed their sins to God in the presence of each other. They didn't go off and find a quiet corner on their own. There is absolutely no pretense here, but this is real, raw prayer with each other and before God. And today, as as we strive to pray more together, both on our own and corporately, I believe we too will be motivated to pray when we are more aware of our own sinfulness before the Lord. When we become aware of, of just how desperate and needy we really are before the Lord. You know, people will often be motivated to pray in, in, in times of, of great need, and we know why that is. You know, when tragedy strikes, when, when sickness or, or death comes, when, when there's mental anguish and we feel just desperate. And, and that feeling of desperation, you know, often pushes us to, pushes us to that place before the Lord where, where we're, we're just really saying, God, I'm desperate. I need you. I need you. You're my only hope in this. And I would say that, that, that our sense of desperation in times like, like those gives us some glimpse, just some glimpse of our desperate spiritual need before the Lord. Sometimes we, we try to hide our needs, don't we? But then other times when they're, when they're bad enough, we, we can do nothing but tell them to each other and bring them before the Lord. And we're very good at hiding our sinfulness, aren't we? Our, our spiritual need um, before the Lord. But he, here's the reality this morning. Each one of you who are, are sitting before me, each one of you sin, and each one of you struggle with sin. And me, I sin, and I struggle with sin. Now, I'm not under any false illusions about you, uh, and you shouldn't be under any false illusions about me. And despite this reality, we're, we're very good at pretending to each other that we don't sin, aren't we? But you see, if we had any true understanding of our sinful hearts before a holy God that we've been trying to grasp through our singing this morning, we would be urgently confessing our sins, both personally and corporately to God. I think I've told you this story before, but um, quite some years ago I did a mission trip to China. 
and we, we, we traveled around different parts bringing Bibles and teaching material. And one evening we got to meet a group of believers and we, we met them just in, in a hotel room and we chatted for a bit and then we, we came to have a time of prayer together. And before we prayed, the leader of that group of believers, he stood up and he said, will you pray for me um, because I have a bad temper? And it really hit me. I never forgot it. Because there's a man who knew the holiness of God and he was coming before God with his brothers and sisters without pretense in real and sincere prayer. You see, if we're going to engage in prayer together, in real prayer that takes us beyond religious trappings or however we want to say it, we need to know our own sinfulness. You know, thinking of the disciples in Gethsemane, when the Lord brought them there and asked them to wait and to watch and pray, but they weren't very motivated, were they? And I wondered if they had more awareness of their own sinfulness and that actually Christ was going to die for their sin, would they be more motivated to stand up and to pray? See, a lack of prayer is often spiritual ignorance. When we're aware of our own sinfulness, it will cause us to pray, making more of God and less of us. And that brings us to our next point, how we pray how we pray. We want to pray making much of God and less of ourselves. So firstly, let's think about making more of God. And we see this through the rest of chapter 9. A thought from first six of the words of Ezra. And some translations will have the words and Ezra said. But Ezra is praying here on behalf of the people It's also possible the second half of verse 5 is the beginning of this prayer. But through the rest of the chapter, the subject of every sentence is God. And hopefully you're able to pick that up as we read through. But if you even scan through now, you will see how many times you is said, you referring to God, God, you did this, you did this, you are, you are, you did this. You see, what, who God is and what God has done is the focus of this prayer. And, and as we think about confession, it's important to see that confession is, is not so much about getting things off our chest and, uh, and maybe getting a bit of relief, but confession is first about who God is And only then will we truly confess our sins. Perhaps the most basic or the first thing we learn about prayer is that prayer is is first to acknowledge who God is, to confess who God is. It's not the first thing Jesus taught his disciples they should do when praying. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Well, this prayer that we have in Nehemiah, it's a, it's a great confession of who God is. In verse 6, we see that God is creator. Look at what it says. It says, you are the Lord, you alone. 
You have made the heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, as language from Genesis 2. You've made the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them, and the host of heaven worships you. We see that God created all things, God sustained all things, and should be worshipped by all his creation. God is creator. We see from verse 7 through to verse 25 that God is saviour. Ezra prays here and he's, he's simply outlining all that God has done to save and rescue his people. Verse 7, you are the Lord. You are the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur. Verse 8, God, you made covenant with him to give his offspring land. You have kept your promise, God, for you are righteous. That's all who God is, what God has done. And in verses 9 to 15, we see all that God did to rescue his people in Egypt. God, you made a name for yourself, for you divided the Red Sea. God, you cast enemies into the sea. God, you led your people with fire and clouds. God, it was you who came down to Mount Sinai. You gave them your commands. God, you provided bread and water. God, you gave reassurance of your promises. We move on, verse 17. You're a God ready to forgive, gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And we move further to the time of Joshua from verse 22. God, you gave kingdoms to your people. You multiplied their children. You subdued nations before them and gave them the land that was promised. And from verse 26, we move into the period of the judges and we see here that God is faithful. God is creator. God is saviour. God is faithful. We see in these verses how he graciously warned his people time and again. And in spite of their constant sin, verse 31, in your great mercies you did not make an end of them or forsake them. For you are a gracious and merciful God. And in verse 32 to the end, we see that God is great. Verse 32, great, mighty, and awesome. And I'm sure Ezra had things and times in mind of when God had specifically demonstrated his greatness and his might and his power. But you see, this prayer, it's all about who God is. I think often we can acknowledge who God is as a, as a bit of a preamble in order to, to get to the main bit of the prayer, to get to what we're really wanting to say or, or to get to what we're really wanting to ask God for. But, but here we see the main bit, the focus, the, the whole prayer is about who God is without a single request. So how do we pray? We confess who God is. And when we do that, the most natural thing we can then do is confess who we are. So from verse 16, is where we see this most clearly, we see this stark contrast between God and 
mind. We see that um, God's people refuse to obey, and yet, in contrast, God, you are forgiving, gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Verse 18. God's people even made a golden calf, even gave the statue credit for delivering them from Egypt. And in spite of this, God did not forsake them. He should have, but he didn't. God did not forsake them, but he sustained his people. He protected them. He multiplied their children. He defeated enemy after enemy and gave them the land he promised. You see, in verse 21, the people lacked nothing. God gave them everything, and yet they appreciated nothing. Verse 17. And then from verse 26, we see this cycle that repeated through the period of the judges and the kings, that the people were disobedient and rebelled. God punished them so that they would come back to him. The people cried out to God. God heard them and rescued them. But they rebelled again, and the pattern repeated over and over again. They never learned, and yet God did not make an end to his people or forsake them. Why? Because he's gracious, and he is a merciful God. And isn't that the pattern of, of all our lives, those of us who know the Lord? I think this prayer could be personal to any one of us, of how God called us and, and saved us from sin, and yet we know we still struggle with sin. We still repeat the same sinful patterns. We've had more idols in our life and we can recall those things that we deem more worth than knowing God. And yet, in spite of who we are, in spite of all we do, God is ever forgiving. He is protecting us. He's sustaining us. He's keeping us and bringing us to heaven. God's people are faithless. God is faithful. Then from verse 32, God's people recall their hardships, right from the kings of Assyria who took over the northern kingdom, and Babylon who took over the southern kingdom, took them into exile, and even now they're under the control of, the, of Persia. And we see here too a contrast, and the contrast is between the hardships of the people and the great and mighty, awesome God. We see that in all that has come upon God's people that is causing them distress and grief. God has been righteous and faithful. And perhaps what we need to take away from here is that God's people, they brought all their circumstances, all their distress and all their grief, and they placed it in the context of who God is and what God is doing in this world. See, our individual lives and our individual stories, they're not the main story in this world. But each one is set in the greater context of God's story of salvation. And that is why in every hardship we can say that God is good and God is faithful. So if we bring every hardship to God in prayer, and we certainly can do that, we want to strive to catch hold of who God is and the salvation that he is bringing. 
So we see the prayer makes much of who God is and makes a realistic, lesser view of who we are. That is how we pray. We make much of God. We make less of ourselves. And you know, as, we, as we go through this prayer, it really tells us what the gospel is. We see firstly that God is creator of all. He is holy and righteous. We're people, we're part of his creation. And yet as his people, arrogantly we refuse to obey God. And so we deserve to be punished by God. But Paul makes this really stark contrast in Ephesians. He says that that all mankind are sinful or disobedient. We, We deserve to be judged by God. But that great contrast comes when Paul says, But God... God, who is rich in mercy and love and grace. And of course, we know God's mercy and love and grace by looking to Jesus Christ. He came to this world. He lived perfectly obedient to God. He died on the cross in place of sinners. He took our punishment. He took God's judgment. And when you have faith in Jesus Christ, you can know the goodness of God. You can know the faithfulness of God. You can know that God will sustain you and protect you and bring you to heaven. The motivation to pray and how we pray. And finally, the results of prayer. So God's people, they have heard God's word taught and explained. We saw that last week. They have responded in confession. And this now leads God's people to a new beginning. Look at verse 38. And now, verse 38, because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. They commit themselves again to God, to living as as his people. And and to do this, they they make a formal covenant or promise in in writing, showing they're really serious about this. And and they have it signed, firstly, by Nehemiah, then by the priests, we see that chapter 10, verse 2 to 8, and by the Levites, verses 9 to 13, and then by the leaders of the peoples and the families. They they get all the bigwigs to sign this. And what they're doing by that is saying, look, we're serious about this. And those who are signing it, all the leaders, they're setting an example to the rest of God's people that should be followed. And the purpose of this covenant, we see the purpose clearly. If you look down to verse 29 in chapter 10. The people are entering into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and to do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his rules and his statutes. God's people are committing themselves again to obedience to God's word. When we become aware of our sin, then that's what we know we ought to do, commit again to obedience to God. And it is here that we're seeing that lasting change that we mentioned um, at the beginning. 
And the following verses through chapter 10 are really proof of that change. In verse 30, they commit to only marry within the family of God. In verse 31, they commit to observe the Sabbath day as a day that is different, set aside to acknowledge and to worship God. In verse 32 to 33, they commit to giving financially to the work of the temple. And in verses 34 to 39, they commit to different offerings and sacrificing that they themselves have been given to the work of God. And what we're really seeing here is that every area of their life has been impacted. As they hear the word of God taught and explained, they are then drawn to God in confession, and now they are committed to changing sinful patterns in their lives. We want to see real, raw, sincere praying. And the true proof of that The true proof of our sincerity will be the change in our lives. And I wonder this morning where are the areas in our lives that we need to commit to change. Perhaps you resonate with some of the commitments in Nehemiah. Perhaps a relationship you're involved with that you know should end. Perhaps it's a commitment to God's people here in the times that we spend together. Perhaps it's a commitment to be more sacrificial with your finances. Or perhaps it's a commitment to give regularly for the first time to the work in this church here. Perhaps it's something else. Perhaps a commitment to forgive where there are grudges. Perhaps a commitment to sexual purity. Perhaps a commitment to truth or a commitment to love where there has been anger. You know your own heart. You know the changes that need to come in your life. And I certainly know my own heart and the changes that need to come in my life. But it's a new beginning for God's people. And wouldn't it be great if we saw many new beginnings today? Perhaps confessing your sins sincerely for the first time and then knowing God's forgiveness and beginning new life with him today. Or perhaps for those who already know life with God, by his grace and faithfulness, we can know a new beginning again. Committing again to being the people of God. Committing again to seeing change in every area of our lives. May God do this work among us, we pray. Let's come to him now in prayer.